There are two readings this morning. The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 to 7, found on page 749 in the Pew Bibles and on page 1195 in the large print Bibles. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married as a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The second reading is from Revelation 19, verses 6 to 10, found on page 1247 in the Pew Bibles and on page 1960 in the large print Bibles. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of this lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Thank you, Maggie, for reading so clearly, and thank you, Norman, for those lovely prayers. As we seek to understand God's Word, let's pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. Father God, we thank you for your Word, and we pray that by your Spirit you will open your Word to our hearts and our hearts to your Word. The Holy Spirit will be our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, when I was um, a small boy of six, we were, had been evacuated during the war down to Wiltshire, and we moved to Putney, to a flat for a couple of years, and uh, my father had been in, in the war servicing the uh, equipment for D-Day, equipping all the troops as they went across. And then uh, in 1945, he went over to the Holy Land and he was part of the uh, British forces out in the Holy Land for um, uh, about seven or eight months. And then when he was demobbed, we moved to a flat in Putney and then he wanted to get a house. And um, so in the end, this came about in 1948 when I was eight, and we moved to a house in Clapham, and they decided they would give it a name. And they called this house Beulah, which I thought was really peculiar. And um, <laughs> uh, they explained to me this just meant married. So as I was preparing this, I was thinking about that, and I thought, next time I see my mum, who is approaching 99, I'm going to ask her, was there more to it than that? because there is more to it than that, and we shall look at that in a moment. Just park that there, this name Beulah, and come back to it later in the sermon. The context here of this amazing uh, passage from Isaiah, which I've been given, Isaiah 62, 1-7, is that Isaiah was very sad about the plight of Jerusalem. The a kingdom was divided into two. There was the northern kingdom with its capital of Samaria, the southern kingdom with the capital of Jerusalem. The northern kingdom had been, uh, Samaria had been destroyed in 722 BC, and many of the people had been taken off by, uh, into Assyria, but destroyed by the Assyrians. Isaiah was prophesying through, and let's assume this is around about 700 BC after the uh, destruction of Samaria, and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, was still intact. Um, it was con constantly being threatened. Um, there would be marauding, the enemy coming around, devastating the land. But Jerusalem itself didn't fall for another hundred years or so. And in the end it did fall, and the people were taken off in um, 586 BC to Babylon, and we know they were there for almost 50 years before they were able to return. So as Isaiah was prophesying during that time when the northern kingdom had fallen but the southern kingdom was under threat. So you've got that sort of picture? I'm trying to give you a very simple sort of outline of what a complicated bit of history. And um, in that context, he was telling them quite often these prophecies, you know, that if you don't repent and if you don't live according to God's way, you're going to be taken away the land will be ravaged and devastated. And of course, that is what happened. But in many of these prophecies, Isaiah is taking a much longer view. And he's looking beyond what might happen to Jerusalem and to the people of God 
into the long-term future of God's people. So, I'm calling this talk, on the first slide, God's vision for his people. So, God is looking far beyond the immediate, right down through the centuries and into virtually into eternity. A long-term vision. God's vision for his people, even in difficult circumstances, even when they're facing struggles, opposition, suffering, and uh, destruction, as the church does today. And Norman alluded uh, in his prayers to the situation in the Middle East. The church is, uh, and Christians there, as we know, have faced all sorts of terrible suffering and persecution, being taken away from their homes, forced out of their homes, some being beheaded, incredible, uh, incredible suffering that they've experienced. And, of course, in Europe, we are seeing um, Christians in the church being um, constantly, there's sort of creeping discrimination, including in the United Kingdom, as secular humanism becomes more and more aggressive. And so we do feel ourselves under you know, some threat, even though we have freedom of expression of our faith uh, in this country. So right through the centuries, this is a relevant message. As God's people face whatever it may be, God is saying, I have a, a longer term, eternal vision for my people. And expressed here in verses 1 and 2, it's about God's vindication for his people and giving us a new name. In other words, we have a character and a name that we can um, be sure comes from God himself and has an eternal purpose. So I want to look at what is God's vision for his people and for us in whatever circumstances we may be going through, however hard and difficult they might be. And the first point I want to make from this passage is that God's vision for his people is to be a light for all peoples. So I haven't got the video there because I've got to stand here. I can't see what's coming up. <laughs> be one of my reflections back on this. <laughs> Otherwise, I've got to stand up even further away from you, which is not the point of it at all. So there we go. Um, but you'll see uh, here, a light for all peoples. Her vindication shines out like the dawn. Her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see it. All kings will see your glory. A few chapters previously in Isaiah 53, Isaiah had been talking about the coming of the Messiah. Oh, Michael, what a saviour you are. Thank you. That's brilliant. I can see myself even. That's terrible. <laughs> but when I get to the pictures, I'll know they're there. That's very helpful. So remember that for the second service. When Jesus did come, one of the first things that happened was that Simeon held him in the temple. And the words of Simeon were these. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Here was the light coming. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me shall never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then he said, you are the light of the world. So this is God's vision for his church, that God's light should shine and that we should reflect that light that comes through Jesus. And Paul picks that up in the Philippian letter, you shine as lights in the world 
holding forth the word of life. These scriptures, which are the word and the good news, is that which brings life. This is the light for the world. A light to be seen and visible to others, that's how we're to be. A light to show the way to others. What a vision that is. How are we fulfilling that vision? It's great that uh, we have in this church a worldwide vision for the church uh, across the world, and we're in contact with and support many mission partners, and it was wonderful. I thought that Norman brought all that into his prayers about seeing God's kingdom established across the world. And that's part of what it is, a light for all peoples. So we seek to support our mission partners. What about our church here? And what about our lives day by day? We've thought in our life groups, haven't we, over the past year or so, about where is our front line? Where is it that we can be lights for Jesus? And I'm sure that's been a huge challenge and encouragement to us, that you are fulfilling this vision. That's the wonderful thing, isn't it? That you, God's people, are doing that. Wherever you are, you are the light for the world, the light of Jesus where you are, and we can point to that light, no matter what sort of dark place we might be in. I wasn't quite alive in 1939, but in the end of 1939, when this country was facing a really dark time, um, and the war had been declared, and who knew what the future might hold. It was a dark time. And this is what King George VI said in his Christmas broadcast in 1939. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than a light and safer than a known way. A light from God for us and for the nations. That's God's vision that has an eternal fulfillment still going on. Second point in this passage is that uh, God's vision for his people is that we are a delight for God. You can see it. That's great. Thank you so much, Michael. A delight for God. Now, that might strike you as very strange. But Isaiah says here, no longer are you going to be desolate, that is alone, but you will have a new name, Hephzibah, for the Lord will take delight in you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Now remember, they were going through very sad times. They were utterly desolate. They were under great threat. And God gives them this vision that is far greater than all of that of God's delight over them. They will have amazing joy. And that's God's eternal purpose for his church and for us. Zion stands for the people of God. The city of Jerusalem stands for the people of God. Zion would be full of joy from God. That's echoed in Psalm 48 verse 2 where Zion is the city of God. Beautiful, the joy of the whole earth. Those lovely words also in the prophecy of Zephaniah. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, that's us as well, God's the new Jerusalem, the Lord your God is with you. He will take great delight in you. 
and will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that absolutely amazing? I don't really thought of that, that God delights in you. God delights in us. And that brings us joy and singing, which is such an expression of joy. And Jesus said that as we experience God's love and keep his commands, he said his joy, he prayed his joy might be in us, and your joy will then be complete. Joy, which is the, one of the fruits, as you know, of the Holy Spirit. And the letter of the Philippians is absolutely full of joy. How are you feeling about that? For you and for me, are we really experiencing that God delights in us? It's an amazing thing, isn't it? That's his vision. He wants you to have his joy in your heart. So whatever challenges you may, may be facing, God delights in you. Whatever uncertainties you may be experiencing, God delights in you. Whatever weaknesses or failures or temptations you may be facing, God delights in you. Whatever disappointments you might be having, God delights in you. Whatever struggles you might be going through, God delights in you. And as Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. God's people are a delight to him. And, not surprisingly, there are three points. Third, let me put this in the right place, ready for 10.30. Third point about God's vision is this, that his church, his people, are to be a bride for Christ. A bride for Christ. No longer deserted, no longer alone, but Beulah. Married, married. As a young person, as a young man marries a woman, so will your sons, it varied text here, or builder, your sons marry you. Your builder, if it's God, your sons, if you is God. So whichever way around you look at this, it is so will you be. You will be married to God. You will be married. Now, it runs parallel with uh, joy. There's a sort of parallelism of these two pictures of God's delight and this marriage, uh, which we shall see in a moment, is uh, like a marriage to Jesus himself for his people. If I just read verses 4 and 5 again. No longer will they call you deserted, and that's about God's delight, changes that, or your name desolate, and the married relationship changes that. But you will be called Hephzibah, God's delight in you, and your land Beulah, married. For the Lord will take delight in you, point two, and your land will be married, this third point. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. So there's the marriage and there's the delight. Do you see how they're sort of interwoven? It's like painting a verbal picture here with these two colours going right through it. So we've separated them out so we can be clear about what Isaiah is saying here. And we've had that second point, God's delight is in us. This third point is 
The reason for that, part of the reason, is because we are the bride of Christ. We are married to God. And that picture of marriage comes through both in the Old and the New Testament. For example, Jeremiah says, Return, faithful, faithless people, for I am your husband. God says, I am your husband. Hosea, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. And in the New Testament, the church is seen as the bride of Christ. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says to the husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And that implication that Christ is the bride of the church, is the bridegroom for the church as his bride, is picked up very clearly in Revelation, in the passage that, um, uh, that uh, Maggie read to us, that the bride is coming. And then it picked up in chapter 21, where John says, I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. A few verses later, the angel says to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So we are the bride of Christ. And that vision was there, given to Isaiah 700 years before Jesus came, that we, the people of God, would be Beulah, married to God and subsequently fulfilled, married to God in Christ. And Jesus himself actually described himself as the bridegroom. Do you remember that instant when some people came to him and said, well, why do um, John's disciples fast and why do the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples don't? And he said, well, why should they? When they've got the bridegroom with them. So he saw himself as the bridegroom. So, what's this about for us? It's all about the closeness of our relationship with Jesus. A relationship, as in marriage, of mutual love. We love him and he loves us. And we love him because he first loved us. A relationship of commitment. He is committed to us and we are committed to him. A relationship of belonging. He belongs to us, we belong to him. A relationship of closeness. We can grow in our closeness to Jesus. That's the challenge for us. The old hymn says it, doesn't it? I am his, and he is mine. Abide in me, and I in you. So, it's for us just to ask that question this morning, isn't it? How is our relationship with Jesus? Are we fulfilling what God's vision is for us to have that closeness with Jesus himself? We are his bride. And just as in, in a marriage, uh, that can be sort of notional or it can be very real. And though it's a true fact, we need to find ways of expressing that and of growing in that relationship and in that devotion to cultivate and nourish and grow in our closeness that we have with Jesus. And you, many of you, are doing that, growing in your relationship with Jesus as the bride of Christ. And there are many, many helps on the market that can help us in nourishing that relationship. So what's our response to such a vision light to the peoples, to all peoples, God's delight in us, and a bride for Christ. What's our response? 
Isaiah expresses it. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. Give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem, till he brings the vision into fulfillment. And it's still going on. Keep praying and keep serving for the vision, for the fulfillment of it. Be watchmen. It uses that word. Anyways, be alert to what's going on so that you can pray about it and react to it and serve within it. John Stott used to say, didn't he? We're to have double listening. We're to listen to God through his word and we're to listen to what's going on in the world around us through the media, the newspapers, and all the rest of it. And we're to have that double listening that enable watchmen so that we can then really pray as Norman did. And we can really hear from God, as we did when Maggie read to us. Double listening. And keep serving. Give ourselves no rest. I need to put in a caveat here, because it doesn't mean to say we were to work our um, socks off in such a way that we become exhausted and burn out. Because scripture does say there's a place for rest. We're made that way. God rested on the seventh day, and he said, you are to rest. We're to have that rhythm of rest and work. And Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. So it doesn't mean that we're not to rest at all. What it does mean is that there's never a time in our lives when we stop praying and we stop serving in some way. And that rhythm of work and rest is built into how we're made. So none of us are too young or too old for this to apply to us. And um, this gives me the opportunity to tell you, in the context of this scripture, something that's happening to Pam and myself. Um, we've been called into a new ministry in a church in Hounslow, not to leave Guildford, we're still going to live in Guildford. But the background to this is that from St. Stephen's Twickenham, there was a church plant two and a half years ago of 30 people, our son Simon and daughter in law and their two children were part of this, called by God to serve in a church in Hounslow West, St. Paul's, which had been closed. And it was in someone else's parish, so there was a special mission order from the bishop, Paul Williams, who was, actually was previously the vicar of the church where, Paul Mann went, where Phil Mann went to be the associate vicar. And... So God has blessed this work. It's grown to about 120, 100 to 120 people. It's in a very mixed area racially, a lot of Asians and Indians there. And it's grown a lot. And um, so the bishop has said that um, they need to become a parish now. And that happened in May. They became parish in their own right, and they were told they've got to incorporate another church into this, the Church of the Good Shepherd, which is... Anglo-Catholic and Eucharistic in its tradition and about 30 people there and they uh, haven't had a vicar who retired three years ago and hasn't been replaced. And our son Simon and Libby, the curate who led the curate who led this church plant had been Andrew Watson, new bishop's curate at St. Stephen's Twickenham and uh, she um, had been trained by him, she led it and she's become the vicar of this new parish and she amazing person knows where she's going and um, so uh, the leaders there um, they were very concerned with her because there's no other ordained person and they approached us to see whether we could 
help and support them. And um, initially we thought this was completely sort of off the wall and impossible. We couldn't get it out of our minds. And as we prayed about it, and I went and talked to Michael Bourne, who was really helpful, and Mike Norris, and everyone's encouraged us and saying, go for it. And so the plan is that from October, we should probably give them two Sundays a month to help in the work there and nurture this church that is part of it, but work as part of the team, nurturing that church and perhaps hopefully taking them to a new place uh, spiritually and building on all they have there. Godly people have met a couple of them. Uh, and um, that we would then lay down our main ministries here at St. Saviour's, but we'll still be available for occasional things. I know some of you want me to take your funeral. And um, <laughs> if I manage to outlive you, I'm still willing to do it. Um, but, uh, and, but also, you know, home communions and one or two other things. But, uh, so we'll still be around, but, and we'll probably try and come here um, one Sunday a month anyway. So it's sort of not goodbye, but it will be a change for us and for you. And um, we would ask your prayers for that. This parish is amazing. It's 20,000 people live in it. I mean, so the opportunities are absolutely huge. And we're really excited about it. A lot of people have used that word. We're daunted because there's a lot that's not known. And so we'd really covet your prayers for us as we go, as it were, kind of as emissaries from St. Saviour's. So our... Uh, Mike Norris is on the 27th of September at two morning services going to pray for us as we sort of go forth, um, as it were, from St. Saviour's into this new work. I've managed to tell some of you about that, and I'm sorry I haven't been able to get around to speak to more of you about it, but Pam and I were equally called into this, which is just an amazing thing, really. And the relevance here to this passage, uh, I just think it's amazing that I'm actually preaching on this passage <laughs> both these services because um, it is just so relevant, isn't it? Don't give yourself any rest while this vision is being fulfilled. It's amazing. We're never too old for God to do new and amazing things in us and through us. And uh, so there's no sitting back and putting our feet up, but to continue to serve and to pray and also to be refreshed by appropriate rest. For us, this is an exciting but daunting thing, opportunity at the same time. So we're all part of God's amazing vision for his people. A light for all peoples, God's delight in us, and a bride for Christ. To have that close relationship with Christ, which really inspires us, takes us forward on this journey. And I thank God for all of you, because you are doing this. You are lights. God's delight is over you. And you have a close relationship with Jesus, as I know so many of you do. So keep going. That's the message. Keep on praying as you do. Keep on serving as you do for God's vision to be continually fulfilled in your life, in our church community, in our mission, and right across the world to the ends of the earth. For the eternal glory of our great God and Saviour. Amen. Amen.